Hello, everyone, and thank you very much, Tamara Tamimi, for joining us for a law pod today on the situation in uh, Palestine. Tamara is a PhD student at the School of Law and uh, an experienced researcher in the human rights sector in Palestine. So let's start by talking about why we're recording a podcast on the situation in Palestine right now, Tamara. Good morning, Anas, and uh, thank you for having me in the law pod. I'm very excited to be here. We are here to speak about the situation in Palestine, the situation where since October 7th, we have seen an escalation from the quote-unquote normal levels of violence that are witnessed in Palestine with devastating effects. We are here today to speak about that and to situate uh, these events within the wider framework of the question of Palestine over uh, the years, because it is very important for, for finding a proper solution to properly contextualize the recent events and think in a more comprehensive way about how is it that we avoid these kinds of escalations uh, in the futures that have very severe consequences. Thank you, Tamara. Absolutely. You know, it's urgent to talk about uh, the situation in Palestine right now. Uh, but of course, what we've seen since the 7th of October is one of many chapters of uh, the uh, conflict and situation on uh, the ground. And of course, it didn't happen in a vacuum. I'm thinking a little bit, Tamara, about uh, your expertise um, based on your PhD thesis, which is on uh, international law in Palestine and perceptions of justice based on international law in Palestine. So this, this presents you as an authoritative voice in this conversation. Based on that, could you give us your thoughts on perceptions of justice in Palestine in general, and perhaps what people might be saying right now on the ground about international law. Before I proceed with answering your question, I would just like to outline for our uh, listeners what is it that I'm doing in my field work. I am asking Palestinians what does justice mean vis-à-vis -vis Israeli settler colonialism, which I argue as a researcher consists of three main components. Uh, colonization, which includes colonizing the land, uh, confiscating the land uh, and settlement expansion. The second component is the elimination of the native indigenous population, Palestinians. And the third component is the imposition of an apartheid regime. And these three components are underpinned by a narrative of entitlement that relates to transforming a religion into an ethnicity here. So I'm asking Palestinians, what does justice mean to you? And what, and I'm not just restricting justice in the form of the, the political solution, what the political solution should look like, but also extend to the accountability and uh, the prosecution and reparations measures. So having said that, some of the very interesting things that we are finding, it's not surprising 
but that support for a two-state solution is an at, at an all-time uh, low among Palestinians. It barely exceeds 10% of the respondents that I have uh, surveyed. The vast majority, as you can tell, they prefer a one-state model from this. Uh, and within this model, Palestinians, they're choosing, predominantly choosing the option of having one state with full Palestinian sovereignty that is democratic and that is religiously pluralistic with equal individual rights for all of its inhabitants. That's about 65% of my respondents. Around 24 to 25%, they believe in one binational state with equal rights for all of its citizens, collective and individual rights. And uh, the vast majority of them support do having a confederation as a temporary solution to get to a one-state solution. So, as we can see, this whole approach by the United Nations, by the Western world, and to a lesser degree by other countries in the global south here, of imposing a two-state solution, it is not really aligned with the perceptions and the wishes of the Palestinian people. We see Palestinians also, a large amount of them saying that accountability and reparations, um, if they have to choose between political solutions and accountability and reparations, they feel that accountability and reparations are very important uh, here for Palestinians because they say that we have made a lot of political concessions over the years and they have not led to anything. So there has to be some kind of accountability for, every, for everything that Israel has perpetrated against Palestinians. Let me give you one example, Alice. There is over 70% of Palestinians who consider the prosecution of Israeli uh, uh, officials for war crimes and crimes against humanity as a priority. But the, the topmost priority that we're seeing among all Palestinians is the right of return for Palestinian refugees here. Slightly over 81% has put the right of return of Palestinian refugees and the associated aspects with it, such as property restitution and compensation for decades of displacement. They put it in the top three uh, options, their top three priorities here, at least one of them. We have about 68% that see these three components together as a package that they cannot be isolated and that they cannot be divided, that the right of return should be effectuated alongside and like intrinsically linked to it as property restitution and compensation for refugees. These are some of the findings from my fieldwork. Going into the other aspect that you asked me about, how are people looking at international law at the moment one international law has been not well received in general among the Palestinian public because they, they keep saying, many of them, that we have been working on international law for many, many years. What has it ever done uh, to us? And see this, they see that international law is predominant, politicized, and enforced mainly 
by uh, Western countries and particularly the permanent members of the United Nations uh, Security Council, that the things that are enforced are the things that are uh, aligned with uh, with the geopolitical interests of these uh, five permanent members, which I would actually argue is inherently undemocratic to have five permanent members who can actually decide for the whole world on on, on everything. But uh, that everything that is enforced is aligned with the, with the geopolitical interests of these countries. And that if they are unable to get it through the Security Council, because as we see, there is increasing conflict and clashes between the views of two main members of the Security Council, they get it, they get it passed at the, at the level of their own domestic policies. We've seen that in Ukraine, and we see the protection that the United States and perhaps to a lesser degree the United Kingdom and France have provided political cover for Israel over the years. From 1972 until today, the USA has used the veto almost 50 times to protect Israel from criticism and, um, and censor, basically. But what's interesting to see also is that this view of the effectiveness of international law is now extending to more professional segments in the Palestinian society. The director of Applied Human Rights Center of Anhaq, a very prominent and perhaps the most prominent Palestinian human rights organization, has published a piece yesterday on the failure of international law in the Middle East eye here. It talks about how international law has failed Palestinians. He draws comparisons with the situation in Ukraine and the swift measures that were taken by Western countries against Russian aggression when this was unprecedented on the part of Western states here vis-a-vis -vis the question of Palestine. Nothing ever came close to the response regarding Israeli atrocities against Palestinians as we have seen the response with respect to Ukraine here. Thank you, Tamara, for such a detailed and articulate discussion. I think the conversations around um, international law and perceptions of justice in Palestine based on international law are fascinating in their own right. But the research you're conducting through focus groups and interviews and surveys is really bringing out um, new, more updated information on what people uh, think about the value of international law in the context of Palestine. Over the past uh, couple of weeks since the escalation of uh, the 7th of uh, October, international law has been on uh, the front pages of many media outlets. Um, but I suppose it's important not to conflate international law and international actors. And if you allow me to go back in time, I think it's important to think about Palestine today as the product of traditional colonialism as well. If we go back to the early 1900s, when Britain was the superpower, the world was a very different place. I'm thinking about the context of World War I and in the throes of war, the Ottoman Empire was looking at uh, 
a gradual disintegration. In that context, Britain and France were eager to get their mitts, if you allow me a non-legal term, on uh, the Middle East and to control the access routes to key commercial ports and most importantly, of course, the Suez Canal. And it's in that context of World War I that Britain, of course, issued the Balfour Declaration, which promises to support the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people in what was at the time Palestine, inhabited by Palestinians. If we fast forward to the end of World War I and to the various diplomatic conferences that, that followed from that point, and then of course the League of Nations mandate system, we see how the international community in its various guises, gave Britain carte blanche when it came to disposing of Palestine, Palestinian land and Palestinian rights uh, in a way that was primarily to serve its own economic and political interests in the region. If we then fast forward to World War II, when the situation accelerates, in large part due to European guilt for the atrocities of the Holocaust perpetrated on European soil against millions of Jews which were massacred for no other reason other than the fact that they were Jewish. We see how European guilt was embedded in what then became the UN partition plan and the UN's position on supporting the newly established State of Israel that, of course, was born from a period of great violence that displaced, I believe, three quarters of a million Palestinians, many of which still today are refugees overseas or live as refugees in refugee camps in neighboring countries, including places where life is incredibly difficult, such as Lebanon or Syria. Uh, and of course, there are Palestinian refugees living as internally displaced persons in Palestine itself. And Gaza, of course, has a number of refugee camps where the conditions are dire. It's in this context, I think, that some of your respondents in your surveys think about international law and the international community. And it's very difficult to distinguish international law as a system of norms from the international community as the guardians of that system in the context where the international community has repeatedly failed Palestine and has been willing over time to quiesce to the dispossession of Palestine and Palestinian rights. It's a long conversation and we could be we could be here for a long time. So I'll try and move our discussion forward by talking about more recent uh, events uh, tomorrow. So the devastating civilian losses that we've seen both on the Palestinian and Israeli side since the 7th of October is something that uh, has shocked the world and is repeatedly covered in uh, the mainstream media, although that also comes with its problems as we can discuss uh, later on. 
In this context, I wanted to ask, do you know any Palestinians in Gaza? And how does that make you feel as you conduct your research on the perceptions of justice in Palestine and international law in Palestine in this particular moment in time? Well, in fact, Alice, actually, yes, I do know many people in Gaza. Many of them over the last years, as Gaza was besieged for so many years, for now 18 years since Israel's unilateral disengagement uh, from Gaza in 2005. Uh, and the UN has warned several times that Gaza will become uninhabitable by 2020. Many of them left. Some of them are still there. I know friends, some of my friends were injured. Thankfully, I didn't lose any friends. Um, but some of them were injured. Uh, some of my friends, their families, uh, have left us because of the Israeli airstrikes. I have other friends who are thankfully okay, but uh, they don't have a home anymore to go back uh, uh, to. Uh, and so, yes, I, I do know some people in uh, Gaza. Well, also when uh, I read stories that are circulating on social media, bringing out human stories, uh, because Gaza was an important part of my childhood. I used to spend three weeks to a month, usually in the summer in Gaza with our friends, very close friends that we consider like family. In here, every summer up until 1999. So when I hear some stories about and read about some neighborhoods, I remember them. Uh, and I remember how they looked like in 2019, 20 years after I've been last in Gaza, when I went in 2019. And now when I think that these neighborhoods have been flattened, that there are places that I have great memories in that are, that are no longer standing, they're no longer there, when I read stories about uh, children or about the fact that women mothers need to write their children's names on their, uh, their hands to um, uh, so that they are able to identify them because the kinds of weapons that Israel is using, uh, th there have been until now many cases of children that they were unable to identify who who they uh, are. Your parents asked me, Alice, how does that make me uh, feel? Makes me feel uh, angry, uh, Alice. Like, going back to what you said about distinguishing between international law and the actors that should be enforcing international law and their failure. Palestinians will not... But the, the, the normal and usual Palestinians will not make that distinction. You and I, we can make that distinction. But what value is the law if you can't really enforce it? Or if you enforce it selectively as you uh, wish? This is how Palestinians see it. This is how Palestinians in Gaza, who are, who have been bombarded now for, what, what, what for almost 20 days. Alice, day and night. Uh, the, the, the Palestinians who, 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 who were in a dire humanitarian situation before, 
October 7th. And now there isn't food, there isn't water, there isn't electricity, there isn't fuel. That is very necessary to operate uh, hospitals, uh, Alice. Uh, so that people on life support can continue to have a chance to live. There's no medication. Doctors now need to do surgeries without anesthesia. I don't know how the actors that are supposedly entrusted with applying international law can see this and remain silent and invoke something along the lines of Israel has a right to defend itself. I also would like to discuss with you, because maybe I don't really understand, how is it that an aggressor can position themselves in a position of defense? We can take October 7th out of the very bigger context that's reductionist, that contributes to the dehumanization and demonization of Palestinian. And the last time we saw this happen, at this scale, by Western governments particularly, and Western mainstream media, Alice. We can talk more about that if you want. This conditioned the mind of the international public opinion to accept mass atrocities, and the, and the result was one million murdered in Iraq. It is unacceptable that there is only media attention to what's happening when when Palestinians fight back, and there are Israeli casualties, but that we have normalized the violence, the daily violence of the occupation and the settlers and the most Israeli right-wing government, even the most Israeli right-wing government hasn't warranted the necessary level of attention and policies to tell Israel, hold on, put your brakes, you're going too far. No one has said that. They say that to Palestinians, but they don't recognize that Palestinians also have a right to defend themselves and are much well more positioned, positioned to do that when they are the ones under occupation and settler colonialism. They deprive us of a right to resistance, which is, which we are allowed to exercise under international law. This is well documented and interpreted. That, that people under occupation and under colonization have a right to a resistance here. here. We are denied all of that. And when we retaliate back, we are the ones who are branded terrorists, who are demonized and who are dehumanized and placed in this uh, situation. Thank you, Tamara, for articulating such a, such a complex aspect to uh, the situation on uh, the ground, which is often ignored by readers and, and, and listeners overseas for a number of reasons. I think I want to go back to the conversation around the distinctions within the international community vis-à-vis the situation in Palestine and ensuring that international law is upheld with no exceptions in relation to Palestinian uh, human rights and right now, of course, uh, international humanitarian law regulating uh, the conduct of uh, hostilities. And in that context, I'm thinking about the statements by the UN Secretary General 
earlier this week who said that it is important to recognize that the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. He, st- he said in no uncertain terms that the Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. This is the UN Secretary General stating quite factually the situation that led to the attacks of the 7th of October by Palestinian fighters affiliated to Hamas and the retaliation, the disproportionate retaliation involving thousands of civilian victims in Gaza. What's interesting, of course, is that Guterres, as the UN Secretary General, is only that. He is only the UN Secretary General, and his statements may not be shared by all members of the United Nations, especially those sitting at the Security Council, and as you were saying earlier, especially some members and permanent members of the UN Security Council who have recently vetoed like calls for a, a cessation of um, hostilities. And this is interesting because the UN has its hands tied externally by political situations that are rapidly unfolding on the ground, but it also has its hands tied internally through the operation of the Security Council as its executive branch. And it's interesting to see that the UN Secretary General was attacked by many quarters for stating uh, the factual reality of the 56 years of suffocating occupation imposed on Palestinians, um, both in Gaza and the West Bank, including uh, East Jerusalem. I believe that the Israeli diplomats in New York have called for his resignation, and the UN Secretary General has received criticism from other quarters as well, which is quite something, given that his statements are carefully worded and are premised on the international legal order set out in the 1945 UN Charter. And every one of his words is carefully picked to ensure that international law and human rights considerations are upheld in relation to all sides to the current conflict. So that is one thing that I perhaps wanted to hear your thoughts on, but I'll pause for a a moment just to say that again, This week, the head of uh, UNRWA, the um, UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, which is one of the major international players in um, Palestine, delivering not only um, aid in a classic sense, but also um, supporting Palestinians in light of the 56-year occupation and, in the context of Gaza, the 16-year siege that has sealed off Gaza from most of the rest of the world, including from the rest of uh, Palestine. So this week, the head of uh, UNRWA, uh, Philippe Lazzarini, published an article in The Guardian uh, in which he stresses that the UN Charter is a commitment to shared humanity and that civilians, wherever they are, must be protected equally. Again, this is an example of somebody 
within the UN system, which is problematic for all the reasons we know and some of which we've discussed, this is somebody within senior within the UN system talking about international law and ensuring that international law protections apply equally and fairly to Palestinians as Gaza is being destroyed. Do you reckon that Mr. Lazzarini will receive the same amount of criticism that we've seen the UN Secretary General receive this week? Or do you think that an aid agency of the UN will be seen in a different light? So I suppose my question is hearing a bit more about your reactions to what happened to the UN Secretary General and thinking a bit more about whether the head of UNRWA will face the same criticism or whether the fact that UNRWA is an aid agency might allow Lazzarini more scope in calling for international law to be upheld. Um, thank you, Anis. I think this is a very important uh, point to discuss here. I will start from where you ended. No, I don't think Nazarene will be afforded any additional space. We have seen the Israeli attacks on Adana uh, over the last uh, years with the application of, of several forms of uh, pleasures, perhaps the clearest of which was when the United States withdrew its funding for the refugee agency under previous, the previous U.S. President uh, Donald Trump, we see how much Israel has targeted on the UNRWA in particular as well. We see how much Israel targets the UN, not just the UNRWA, which is particularly detrimental to them because it's the one that safeguards Palestinian refugees, which arguably remains one of the most important aspects preserving Palestinian rights and prospects of really fulfilling justice for Palestinians eventually here. But putting Andra aside, and I think that's because that's particularly why Lazarina's comments will be individualized as a person. He will not be seen as head of Andra, much like what happened with Secretary General Guterres, where he is personally attacked, and I would even add bullet to issue a statement to set the record straight. I can't remember the last time a Secretary General had to go up 24 hours after making his statement to set the record straight after such immense criticisms, calls for his resignation, and threats to withdraw and not uh, grant visas for UN officials. This is bullying, Anis. I don't know how else to describe it uh, here. I think the same will happen with Lazzarini. They'll take him as an individual who has an agency that is very important. And this is in keeping with Israel's behavior. What was the last time a special rapporteur for Palestine allowed to enter into Palestine? They have to do their consultations remotely in Egypt and in Jordan to, to meet with the experts. They have not been allowed. The current special reporter, uh, Francesca Albanese, before that, uh, Michael Lee, the same with uh, Richard Falk. We've seen all of that. So I, I think Israel 
has that audacity in engaging with you on officials. They don't give them the credit that is or the respect that is due to an international organization, whether it's a humanitarian one or has a more human rights aspect or whatever it is uh, here. We saw Israel's uh, behavior in the Human Rights Council when they withdrew their uh, membership here. We see that whenever there's going to be something at the level of the International Court of Justice, how much pressure is applied to prevent from the, the actual adversary opinion getting to the International Court of Justice, we see how much the pressure is to prevent it from reaching, and then even if it is reached, how much pressure there is so that to manipulate the outcome of uh, this. In the one case, which uh, was issued almost 20 years ago, they have refused to engage with the, with the court and said that it doesn't have the mandate to issue this advisory opinion. It's when it is very set, clearly set in law that the General Assembly is entitled to ask for an advisory opinion on the court. That it's a very, it's, it's a very simple thing. So Israel does that. They get to interpret things as they wish and decide how much they engage with them or how much they smear someone or attack someone, smear and attack people because they see themselves above the law and no one is going to really force them to abide by the law and respect the law and not invoke their own victimization. Don't understand me wrong. I think loss of civilian lives is tragic. Not just uh, in the recent uh, events, but also in the Holocaust. I think the Holocaust is tragic. I think it is disgusting. But we know all too well how much Israel has exploited this to, to, to continuously victimize themselves and by extension commis, commit mass atrocities against others. So to go back to this, this is an overall, to, to go back to your question, this is an overall approach, Anis, that we see. It's a behavior. It all comes together. It all fits together. I don't think Nazarene will be afforded any additional scope, and I think he will be particularly targeted, Anis, because of the special character of the UNRWA here. Thank you, Tamara, for uh, your thoughts on uh, this. I think it's 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 important to reflect on a theme which uh, is emerging, which is the disregard of international law, which is problematic for the reasons we we know and that your research uh, reveals. But it does, at the same time, provide some parameters that should ensure the protection of human rights, and at least some form of human dignity. And I think the attacks against international law and the UN as the key institution of uh, international law, despite all its problems that we know, these attacks are quite telling. And these attacks demonstrate, I suppose, the exceptionalism that the uh, Israeli government uh, seeks in relation to the rest of the international community and, in particular, uh, the exceptionalism it seeks in relation to uh, international law. And I suppose the, the repeated 
references to Israel's quote-unquote right to defend itself, which are endorsed with very limited qualifiers, even by a number of Western politicians, is interesting and is something that should be worrying us much more than it presently does. Because when any state thinks it can operate above international law, it's a sad day for for human beings. It's not about states, it's about human beings. Okay. I would have lots lots of questions tomorrow to follow up on uh, the discussion so far, but I will uh, limit myself to two final questions that I will give you together, and then you can decide uh, which one you would like to focus your attention on in greater detail. First question is about the role of the media in all of this. We've seen reports stating uh, everything and the opposite of everything in uh, the mainstream Western media, in, in more specialized media, and in you know countercultural media uh, as well, if that's a label uh, we, can, uh, we can use, at least in the, in the context of uh, uh, the West. The role of social media has been quite important over, over the past, you know, 15 odd years. And we're seeing this again in the context of the most recent events in uh, uh, Palestine. So that's, that's the first question. And my second and I think final question is, Tamara, what are the ways forward? Where, where, where to next? Are there any solutions that emerge from your research that perhaps could be applicable to um, what we've seen in the past few uh, weeks. And I'll leave you with these two huge questions to deal with. I think they're both very important questions, Alice. So I will uh, focus on uh, both. I think the media has played a very big uh, role since October 7th. Um, at the beginning, it was mainly the mainstream media, which actually took on a very, I would say, unethical position because it did not uphold the standards that it purports to, to uphold. There was, they played, the mainstream media, particularly in the Western world, they played a very big role in the, de in the demonization of Palestinians. I remember seeing several videos the first couple of days for Palestinian ambassador to the UK, Hussam Zumla, coming on several uh, mainstream media shows, whether on the BBC, on Sky News, with Christian Amanpour uh, at the CNN and others. The first question that they would ask him, do you condemn what Hamas did? And setting the parameters for the conversation so that the start date of the conversation starts with October 7, it's very problematic. And it goes back to what Secretary General Guterres has said, that what Hamas could do did not happen in vacuum. Did not happen in vacuum. Basically, this mainstream media has done several things. They've dictated the parameters of the conversation in a reductionist manner. In doing so, they have dehumanized Palestinians, basically. Here, they have dehumanized Palestinian blood, our lives, and, and Palestinian casualties for the past 56 years. 
56 years, basically. And do you know, Alice, there's a recent statistic saying that in this last assault on Gaza, Israel murdered more Palestinians than Palestinians have killed, killed Israelis since 1948. In this span alone, a little bit over 6,000 Palestinians. In 75 years, Palestinians have killed 6,000 Israelis. Again, not justifying. I think loss of civilian life is tragic. Yeah. They killed more Palestinians in 18 days than we have killed in 75 years, Alice. And then you get people on mainstream media and who also have a strong social media presence. So who tells you Israel has a right to defend itself then. That's where he wants to start the conversation and then asks you, what is a proportional response? Well, for me, I refuse to start the conversation there. What Hamas did, did not happen in vacuum here. So I refuse to start the conversation there and contribute to the demonization of Palestinians. And even if we want to talk about proportionality, what Israel's response has not been proportional and it negates. And essentially asking this question, it negates statements by the Israeli army spokesperson who, who spread it out very clearly. Our aim is, uh, our, our aim is to inflict damage, not accuracy and precision. He said that, he said it outright. And he says that Alice because they enjoy impunity. Because they know they will escape war crimes for this. Because they have effectively deprioritized the Palestinian, the Palestinian investigation at the International Criminal Court with the opening of other investigations with the, with the reallocation of some of the budgets, as I understand, from the investigation of Palestine to other investigations and all of that. They know they can say things like these and get away with that because of the impunity. And this relates to what you said, Alice, that Israel sees itself above the law. I think, and I think that's why we can connect how much, uh, how much uh, uh, Secretary General Guterres was attacked so aggressively. Because this is the beginning of the road that where it will begin that Israel enjoys less and less impunity here. Where it is not above international law. It starts with one word and it builds up to it. And this is what they will prevent, Alice. One last thing that I will say about, uh, or two things. The, pre the previous prime minister of Israel, Yair Lapid, who is supposed to be portrayed as a partner for peace, as a moderate, as someone who is better than Bibi Netanyahu and the most radical right-wing government there is, but particularly Batsan and Smotrich and Ben Gavir, when people are referring to that. This year, Erlapid, yesterday or two days ago, he actually said that if the media covers things uh, objectively, that supports Hamas. If the media covers the two sides of the stories, that benefits Hamas. He's essentially asking for the, the media to manipulate the situation and to cover it in a one-sided one method. And this is where the alternative media and the progressive media, they play a very crucial role in order to counter this narrative, this very harmful and toxic narrative 
that blames the victim for not paying the perfect victim. Anas, that blames the victim for not paying the perfect uh, victim uh, here. So I think the alternative media channels are very important. I think there has to be a lot of public pressure on social media because the, we have several reports that are coming out that are explaining how much censorship is being exercised against pro-Palestinian content, content by both Facebook and uh, Instagram. I think we need to apply a lot of pressure on social media so that they do not continue down this pathway of censoring pro-Palestinian content. And I think progressive and alternative media outlets are crucial in this, in, in this time to counter the Israeli land. This is on the media. Uh, now on what are the solutions? Uh, uh, Anas, I think the solution is very simple. Many people would say, I don't see peace in the horizon. I don't see peace in the horizon because it is far too complex. I understand where they come from, but I don't think it's complex at all or complicated at all, Alice. I think this is part of the trick that Israel does to make it look complicated and complex here. But it could be, in fact, very simple and very easy. It just requires courage, Alice. I think it will take a lot of courage for the Palestinian leadership, firstly. Then after that, the international community to admit that the two-state solution is dead. Unless they've been advancing a two-state solution when we now have over 700,000 settlers in the West Bank, including Jerusalem. How is it that this going, uh, is going to be possible to establish two states without further Palestinian concessions? And that's easy for them to say. Palestinians should make further concessions. They don't understand that the ultimate concession, that the deal of the century was Oslo for Palestinians. We cannot afford to make more concessions. And going back to my research, Palestinians don't see it as a just solution. They don't see the two-state solution as serving justice. Many Palestinians have told me while they're filling the survey, we've made many concessions 30 years ago. No one respected that. Not Israel, who was only required to roll back its occupation, nor the Western world that has pushed us for many, many, many years for a two-state solution. They didn't uphold their end, the, the end of their responsibility to pressure Israel to decolonize, to, to, to end its occupation over the land it, it, it occupied in 1967, Alice. So I think we need to recognize that the road to peace is long and difficult. But possible if we all have courage to work on a one-state solution where everyone lives in harmony. A democratic state, a religiously pluralistic state, Alice. Just like before Israel was created, I would like to remind our listeners that Jews in the Middle East and North Africa lived in harmony with nationals from other religions. Jews were a, a, an integral part of a national fabric. Jews in these countries never felt the need to turn a religion into an ethnicity to ensure self-preservation. 
anti-Semitism did not originate from this part of the world. It originated and evolved into something very, very, very horrific and traumatic in other areas of the world. It is ironic that it is these areas of the world that now support Israel and its right to defense at the expense of Palestinians in here. It is very, very ironic, I would uh, say. I think it's about time to say, to have the courage to say the two-state solution is that Israel, you cannot be both democratic and Jewish. These two sets of values are irreconcilable in here. You need to pick one. Let's work on all of us living together with equal rights and uh, and in harmony, just like it was a hundred years ago. Not a very long time ago. We can work towards that. It will take time. It will take effort. It will be painful. There has to be accountability and prosecution because I don't know if a Palestinian woman can live alongside Israelis after she had to bury her daughter or her son, Alice. There has to be prosecution. There has to be some some form of accountability. But I think we can get it. It takes courage. You might think we you might be thinking now it's not realistic. But I'm telling you this is what Palestinians will be will consider Asia's solution. Thank you, Tamara. I think that's a positive note and vision for uh, the future. And I very much hope uh, the findings of your research for your PhD will be able to inform the, the journey that Palestinians face from this point uh, onwards in uh, ensuring that justice and human rights uh, are not just words on paper in international law documents, but are lived experiences for everyone who lives between the river and the sea. And I think what you're yes. saying uh, about having courage and vision is, is important. Let's just hope that local leaders will have that courage and vision and that the international community uh, will have the courage and vision to uh, support what is just, what is reasonable, uh, and what is based on equality, fairness, human rights, and non-discrimination for everyone uh, in that part of uh, the world. And on, on this note, I think I should thank you very much, Tamara, for making time to be with Thank you, Alice. Thank you very much, and take care. Thank you, Alice. Thank you. Thank you.